Please open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. Even though today is Palm Sunday, we've been working our way through Holy Week for a number of weeks now in the Gospel of Mark, and we come today to the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as recorded in the 15th chapter of Mark. You know, we've all had days that have changed the course of our life, whether for good or for bad. We've all been a part of those events that forever shaped our life before us. Perhaps it was a good thing, the birth of a child, an engagement in a, in a wedding. Maybe it was a job promotion that brought you to a new area, an exciting time in the life of your child, maybe graduating for, from college. And these, are, these are all events that impact us in a, in a profound way. Maybe it, was, maybe it was an event that affected you negatively. Uh, perhaps it was a divorce, the loss of a loved one. Maybe it was something that you had no control over, and, and yet it has forever changed the course of your life. Well, the two events that we're going to talk about today and then on Easter Sunday forever changed the course, not just of an individual's life, life but forever changed the course of human history. Let's look at Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 6. We've just are winding down the trial phase, and we find Jesus before Pilate in verse 6. It says, Now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. Now that's speaking of Pilate. It says, And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he had perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him up to be crucified. What we're going to do here is walk through the, the narrative of the crucifixion of Jesus. And as we walk through, we'll, we'll find several points of application we see here that Pilate is in a, in a quandary. He doesn't know what to do with Jesus. On one hand, he knows he's innocent. But on the other hand, he fears the people. And he knows that he'll have an angry mob on his hands if he doesn't succumb to their wishes. You can see him battling. In Jesus' reply to Pilate and John's record of 
these proceedings, John 18, 36, he makes it clear that he's not a political threat to the Romans. Yes, he is a king, but his kingdom is not of this world. Nonetheless, Pilate feels he must act. Well, as the passage tells us that on the Day of Atonement, there was a custom where Pilate would release one prisoner of the people's choosing to help ease relations between the Romans and and the Jews. It was an olive branch, if you will. And so what Pilate did is he stepped in and he picked the criminal this time around. And he decided to pick a terrible criminal, thinking most certainly they're not going to want to let this man go. They'll, They'll instead choose Jesus And I won't actually have to make the decision. Barabbas was an evil man. A man who the Gospels tell us was a murderer, a thief. He had been guilty of trying to start an insurrection against the Romans. This was a vile criminal. In fact, in all likelihood, that very day... It was Barabbas who was supposed to be between the two other thieves. There were three crosses already made, and most likely, the one that was eventually handed to Jesus had been originally made for Barabbas. So, as we think about how this applies to us, the first thing that we need to take note of in this passage in a very profound way is that Jesus died to set the guilty free. It was Barabbas who was supposed to die that day. He was the guilty one. He was the one who belonged on that cross. And yet, an innocent man took his place. Jesus died to set the guilty free. That day, Barabbas A very guilty man went free. And this becomes a picture of what Jesus has done for you and I. We deserved condemnation. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. The just penalty for our sin was eternal separation from God. We were guilty. And yet this innocent man died in our place. Whatever your feelings are about the movie, The Passion of the Christ, I thought that they captured this image well as Barabbas is walking down the steps. He's laughing and celebrating. I mean, imagine the joy in his heart at one moment. You think you're going to die. That morning you wake up thinking it is your last sunrise that you will ever see. And all of a sudden now, you hear shouts of, release Barabbas. And in the movie, he's cheering along with the crowd, yes, yes, release me. And then his eyes meet Jesus. The color drains from his face, the smile disappears for a moment. I don't know whatever happened to Barabbas, but we do know what happened to Jesus. He took Barabbas' place. 1 Peter 3.18 tells us, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Wow, I'm so glad that Jesus died to set the guilty free. 
As the passage goes on, we're told that in verse 15 that he had Jesus scourged and delivered him to be crucified. Mark just almost glosses over this serious punishment that Jesus received. He said he had him scourged. In fact, most of the gospel writers really don't spend much time here. Mercifully, they leave out the details of what a scourging is. This were, would, have, would have been where a leather whip with multiple strands coming off of it. And in, in, in each of the, the strands having a piece of broken glass or metal or bits of bone, sharpened bone attached to the end. This whip would be applied to the back of the criminal. This was such a severe punishment that many criminals died simply from the scourging. They didn't even make it to the cross because it would just tear the flesh from one's back, often exposing bone and even organs. It's a terrible, terrible punishment. And so Pilate had Jesus scourged and delivered him to be crucified. Verse 16 tells us that the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. It says that they here had a, had a, it says a battalion of men. That's somewhere around 600 soldiers here were present for Jesus' crucifixion. Pilate was truly worried that he have a riot on his hands. And these soldiers began to mock him, and they beat him. They took a crown of thorns that would have had long, long, sharp thorns, and, and they, they pressed it down into his head so that the blood would flow down his, his face and his, his hair and his neck. And they beat him and spat upon him and mocked him. Verse 21 tells us that they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. The passage tells us that as Jesus is, is walking along the, the road, struggling with his cross, you can imagine after the beatings he's already received, how difficult it would have been to carry the, the gigantic wooden beams and they grabbed a man who was coming in. We don't really know what he'd been doing. Maybe he'd been out in the fields uh, gathering produce to sell in the market that day. We don't know. We know this was still the morning time. And Simon was grabbed to help carry the cross of Jesus. And just an interesting side note. It tells us about his family. And it, it almost seems like an unnecessary detail. He's the father of Alexander and Rufus. And you wonder why Mark would include such details while he's in the middle of an intense narrative about the hero of the story dying. Remember, Mark was writing to a Roman audience. And later on, when Paul writes the book of Romans to the, to the Roman church, the name 
Rufus is mentioned. In Romans 16.13, he mentions that Rufus and his mother, who would have been Simon's wife, had been a great help to him. Obviously, they had become believers and were now part of the church at Rome. Whatever happened that day, whatever Rufus saw, we don't know if he stayed around and watched the crucifixion. We don't know if he began to talk to some of the followers or the women who eventually came to the tomb on Resurrection Sunday. Whatever happened there, it forever changed Simon's life and the life of his family. I think it's pretty interesting. An interesting reminder that God has the power to impact a family for God. You know, you may be, you may be praying for some relatives, maybe your own immediate family, and you, you wonder just how they would ever turn to Christ. It seems like for so many years they've wanted nothing to do with Jesus. Never underestimate God's power to change your family and to turn hearts to Jesus. And as Simon encountered Jesus there on the road that day, it changed his life and the life of his family forever. It tells us in verse 22 that they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. In the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. And so also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Tells us in verse 25 that he was crucified at the third hour. This would have been about nine o'clock in the morning that they set the beams in the ground They cast lots for his clothes. They mocked him as the pain of the crucifixion ramped up. There was nothing but scorn and shame and disgust being heaped upon him. We cannot forget this aspect of the pain that Jesus went through. We know that he went through all kinds of physical pain, but here we we see the emotional pain. Many of us ball up and start whimpering when somebody says a single word of unkindness to us. But, but here Jesus is being absolutely mocked and ridiculed. Nothing but slander and hatred coming to him on the cross. In verse 33 it tells us that about the sixth, when the sixth hour had come, There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
at about noon. So Jesus has been on the cross for about three hours now. At about noon, darkness descends upon the land. Now, we've all been around, we live in Michigan here, right? We've all been around when a, in a, when a dark thunder cloud rolls in in the middle of the day, and all of a sudden, maybe what was a, in the morning a bright, shiny day, all of a sudden now it's, it's gray. But this is darkness here. This is like the sun going down darkness, but it's happening at noon. Now, I want you to try to put yourself in their shoes. I mean, darkness, darkness is a bit unnerving, all right? Now, we may not be scared of the dark, but it can, it can be a bit unnerving, especially when it comes in the daytime, in the, when it's supposed to be light, the heat of the day. I remember when we were kids, we, we had this basement, and all of us were a little bit creeped out of being down in the basement by ourselves. And, and uh, in, the, in the back corner of the basement, then we had a, another little room that had been sectioned off, and that was our fruit cellar where Mom put her canned vegetables and fruit. And often we'd be commissioned to go down there into the cellar to go get something. And, and so, you know, I had three brothers, and, and uh, somebody would be given the job. And, and what would happen sometimes then is someone would be standing at the top of the stairs as that brother was going down on their mission to get the fruit or the vegetables. And they would say, hey, don't turn the light off on me. I've got to go to the fruit cellar. They would say, no, no, don't worry about it. I'm just... Here, keeping watch over you. I, I promise I won't turn off the light. No, I'm serious. Don't turn off the light on me. No, no, no. I promise. I won't. I won't. I won't. Sure enough, as soon as they disappear on the corner and you think, they're probably in a fruit cellar about now, off goes the light. Mom! I don't like the darkness, especially when it's supposed to be daytime. This would have unnerved even the toughest of men, realizing that something was going on. As Jesus is there on the cross dying, it says about the ninth hour, about 3 p.m., Jesus cried with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As we further think about how this text applies to our life, the second application I want you to take note of is that Jesus was forsaken so that we don't have to be. Jesus was forsaken so that we don't have to be. Upon the cross that day, something took place that was even more painful than the violent scourging. It was more agonizing than the nails. It was more unbearable than being rejected, spat upon, and mocked by the people. It was the actual and dreadful separation from His heavenly Father. And it was because of our sins and the just penalty that was due them. You and I can sometimes be far too flippant about our sins. Very rarely do we have a realistic perspective of how atrocious, how utterly wicked our sin is. Nothing reveals the gravity of our sin like the cross. Nothing reveals the gravity of our sin like the cross. But nothing reveals the love of God like the cross. 
There's no other way for a righteous God to righteously forgive our unrighteousness. And Jesus bore our sins. And the Father turned His face away. You and I cannot fathom what it was like for the Son, eternally united to the Father and the Spirit in perfect trinity, to have the Father turn away from the Son. When we see that happen here on earth, when we see a parent reject their child, a parent who's supposed to love and nurture and care for them and, and be there when they scrape their knees and when they, 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 they want to learn to ride the bike and on their first day of school. And that, that parent walks away. That's heartbreaking to watch. But see, when that happens here on earth, it's for sinful, selfish reasons. The father turned away the Heavenly Father turned away from His Son. Not because of any sin that either of them had committed, but because of our sin. Because the perfect holiness of the Father could not bear to look upon the Son in that moment as He shouldered the sin of the world. And you know something? He did that for you. He did that for you. He did that for me. Jesus was forsaken so that we don't have to be. Verse 37 says that Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Verse 38 tells us that the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Now, I don't want you to skip by this and miss the, how, just how profound this was. This was an extremely thick veil. This was not just a, you know, a, a little silk veil that... Uh, lace veil that you might wear on your wedding day. This veil was said to be as, as thick of, as, as, as it is between your, your pinky and, and the end of your thumb. It was, it was maybe six to, six to nine inches thick. It's a massive piece of fabric. And you remember that this veil separated the, the holy place from the, the holy of holies. Not just anyone could go there because inside the Holy Holies was the ark where the presence of God dwelt among His people. And, and only the priest, only the high priest could go there. And only on this day that Jesus is dying, this day, the Day of Atonement, that was the only day that He was allowed to enter in to the Holy of Holies. There, and there, there were regulations and rules and stipulations that surrounded this. You couldn't just go in any time you wanted. It had to be a specific person on a specific day abiding by very specific cleansing principles to show that not just anyone could come into God's presence, that, that there had to be a complete and total cleansing for you to be able to approach God. And so the average person 
In fact, only one per- everybody but one person was not permitted in there. That was symbolic of the need for cleansing to be able to come to God. Sin had to be washed away, paid for and dealt with for the sinner to be able to approach a holy God. And there as Jesus breathed his last, that veil was torn. The gigantic piece of fabric that separated man from God was torn in two. And you know what it said? It said, come. Come to me. Let us now approach boldly the throne room of grace. The third application here is that Jesus made a way to the Father. Jesus made a way to the Father. No longer do you and I have to stand on the outside of the temple sacrificing lambs and bulls and goats. We can go boldly into the throne room of grace all because of what Jesus did on the cross. The barrier, it is gone for good. And it's only possible because Jesus has paid the price for our sin. You know this morning that you can freely and boldly go to God and there's no more dividing wall of separation. If you're a child of God today, if you've trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if, if the blood of Jesus has cleansed you from your sins then you can boldly go before him with great joy as his child. Jesus made a way to the Father. For the sake of time, we're not going to read the following verses, but it goes on to tell us that, that Jesus was, after he died, he was buried. There were women there that, that uh, made sure that Uh, that Jesus was taken care of, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a respected member of the Sanhedrin, who obviously did not agree with the vote to crucify Jesus. He appears to be a follower of Christ. He offered up his own personal tomb, and that's where Jesus' body was laid. Before we close today, there's one last application that I want us to see. It comes from Verse 39, there was a centurion who had been a part of crucifying Jesus, and he'd watched the whole thing. He'd seen Jesus raised onto the cross. He'd been there when darkness fell and the earth shook, hearing what Jesus cried out upon the cross, and he makes what is the most theologically profound statement of anyone here in this passage. He says, truly, this man was the Son of God. It wasn't Jesus' followers who made this statement. It wasn't one of the disciples. They had all hightailed and took off. This was one of the soldiers attending to his death. And he's watched everything unfold 
and he sees what's just happened. And God opens up his eyes to see just how profound the death of this man truly was. It's not a common criminal dying for his own actions. He says, this, this man here, he's the son of God. He's who he claimed to be. It was at the foot of the cross that this man encountered Jesus Christ. The fourth application that I want us to see this morning is that you can only meet Jesus at the foot of the cross. You can only meet Jesus at the foot of the cross. You see, you can have all kinds of things that you want to bring before God to tell Him just why He should accept you, just how important an addition that you would be to His kingdom, what a blessing you are to the body of Christ, the deeds that you've done, the things that you have accomplished. But all that stuff is garbage unless you first come to the cross of Jesus and you meet Him there. Placing your faith in Jesus because of what he's done on the cross is the only way to a relationship with him. And if today you've never, ever come to the cross to see the Savior paying for your sins, why not let today be that day? Believing as this centurion did, truly this man the Son of God. It's only at the foot of the cross that you can meet Jesus. Centuries ago, on the south coast of China, high up on a hill overlooking the harbor of Macau, Portuguese settlers built an enormous cathedral. They believed that it would weather time, And they placed upon the front wall of this cathedral a massive bronze cross that stood high into the sky. Well, not too many years later, a typhoon came and God's finger work swept away man's handiwork. And all of that cathedral was pushed into the ocean and down the hill as debris. Except the front wall and that bronze cross that stood high. Centuries later, there was a shipwreck. Out a little bit beyond that harbor, many died, but a few lived. And one of the men that was hanging onto the wreckage from the ship, moving up and down in the crest of the ocean as the swells were moving, he was disoriented, frightened. He didn't know where land was. As he would come up on the swell, though, he would spot that cross, tiny from that distance. His name was Sir John Bowring. When he made it to land, he lived to tell the story, the story of that cross that guided him to safety. That cross can still be seen today if you visit Macau. He wrote these words, in the cross of Christ, 
I glory. Towering o'er the wrecks of time, all the light of sacred story gathers round its head sublime. The last stanza goes like this. When the woes of life o'ertake me, hopes deceive and fears annoy, never shall the cross forsake me. Lo, it glows with peace and joy. John Bowring is telling us that we have a cross. It's more than a cross that's mounted on the side of some cliffs. It's, it's the cross on which our Savior died. And everything seems to come down on top of us when we're not sure what to do. And remember to go back to the cross. Remember the empty tomb. Call to mind the fact that Jesus is neither on the cross nor in the tomb, but He lives and He stands ready and able to give us victory through whatever we're going through. Would you come to the cross this morning? This is your first time there. If you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, come to the cross for salvation. Come to the cross for a relationship with God. He wants you to draw near. Maybe you've been to the cross before. Maybe you're familiar with the cross. You've grown up in church. Come to the cross with fresh eyes today. Realizing that it was our sin that held him there. And the Father, he, he turned his face away. But it was all because of the love that he has for us. The crucifixion of Jesus. A day that forever changed the course of human history. Let's allow it to change our lives today. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, teach us to know and understand the significance of the cross. May we come to glory in what Jesus has done for us. May our hearts be flooded and filled with praise as we think upon the finished work of Christ. And then move us to take the message out to share this incredibly good news. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.